My global IQ is 109. As the world finds itself in the midst of a pandemic, healthcare systems around the globe are being praised and criticized now more than ever. Each country's response to COVID-19 puts its respective medical system really on trial for how it protects its citizens and provides affordable quality health care. Today's guest, Dr. Zeke Emanuel, in his recently published book, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare, provides a well-researched and truly a comprehensive framework that compares 11 countries. And as we will soon hear, this certainly was no easy task. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Falk, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. So now let me welcome Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. He's the Vice Provost for Global Initiatives and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. He's the author of several books, including Healthcare Guaranteed and Reinventing American Healthcare probably would not surprise you that he worked closely with President Obama's work on reforming healthcare. And he's also now serving and working on Joe Biden's coronavirus task force. He's an oncologist by training, and he received his MD and doctorate in political philosophy at Harvard. We're going to come back to that. Zeke, thanks for joining us. It's great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So to start off, you know, I was fascinated, though, that you had earned your doctorate in political philosophy. I had um, realized when I went to Washington to write for the New Republic that uh, being a journalist and covering things isn't what I wanted to do. I then returned to Harvard for my second year because I didn't have a plan B um, and did a second year. But I was fortunate enough to be able to teach at Harvard College um, while I was uh, in medical school. And uh, I realized that that was much more what I really wanted to do. I thought I was a good teacher, and I thought the idea of doing research, so I applied to do a PhD in political philosophy um, and focus on bioethics and health policy issues. And so that's how I got my uh, start in this area. And, you know, virtually all my research has been uh, bioethics, uh, health policy kind of areas. I want to turn to your book. I... Uh... I really enjoyed it, and it was because I, I knew so little about uh, healthcare. We read the stories in the papers, but we realized that we're just really skating at the surface. I'm not going to begin, like so many of your interviews, by asking which country has the best, because I know how evasive you will be at that, at least in the beginning. But do tell us more about the challenges you had in gathering the data for these 11 countries and um, how. Uh, how did you pick the countries? Well, first on how we picked the countries, I wanted to pick countries that would be, in some sense, representative paradigmatic cases. So, you know, we, uh, liberals tend to like anything Scandinavian. So we had our Scandinavian country in Norway, which I had known a little bit about, but, but nowhere near the detail that is in the book. Um, Britain and Canada, because they always are part of the punching bag, um, the WHO had, when it did, it did the first ranking of countries, had France number one, so we thought we should have France. Um, I knew that the German and Dutch systems, um, 
the Dutch system in particular in the Netherlands, uh, often highly rated because it's a sort of managed competition system that lots of health policy people in the U.S. look to. Uh, the German system I thought was uh, very important because the original uh, from the 1880s. Um, and then Australia, again, I knew something about They had a very, very uh, robust uh, pharmacy benefits management program. Uh, China, I thought, would be a, a very good contrast as the other world superpower. And Taiwan gets, you know, if you talk to anyone who's ever been in Taiwan, gets rave reviews. So we thought we ought to cover that. So that, that's the sort of collection. Fortunately, they also, and by the way, we did Switzerland because conservatives in the United States often like Switzerland and, and sing its prayers. They have very different ways of financing. They have very different philosophies, if you will. Um, they have different, you know, kinds of government. So it, it provided a contrast in almost every way you could imagine uh, uh, to get these countries. Obviously, it's not comprehensive. There are many countries left out with subtle differences that may be very, very high. You know, we've there are various aspects of the Italian system, which actually rank pretty highly uh, by lots of people's uh, uh, standards. Um, so, and we don't have a Latin American country. We don't have uh, uh, some other countries that often get high ranks. Now you mentioned uh, WHO ranking. How often is that done? And why is that considered not very reliable? Well, <laughs> It was the granddaddy of them all. It was done in 2000 when a man who's now at the uh, University of Washington, Chris Murray, was there, had a lot of mathematical formulae and, and uh, um, a little bit of a black box. Uh, Chris is, is famous for his beautiful graphics, so it had a lot of beautiful graphics. Um, but it also seemed implausible uh, once you actually looked at the ranking. Yes, France was number one and Italy was number two. But, you know, there's a whole slew of countries, um, Oman, uh, Cyprus, that rank ahead of the United States. And you say, all right, that might be what we don't do necessarily that well. But they also rank ahead of places like Germany. And you're like, eh, that doesn't seem plausible. So something's wrong. And then two wags from uh, Britain <laughs> noted, well, there's this correlation between how well the country does in the uh, soccer uh, World League and uh, the, you know, ranking in the WHO. Maybe it's really that that drove this. And um, once you show that there's this high correlation to something totally irrelevant, you're like, eh, maybe this isn't a good method. And they haven't really repeated it. I think they got, um, um, you know, pretty, it, it just seemed implausible once people began picking it apart. There have been a number of others, as I mentioned in the book, uh, we, uh, we and some French colleagues counted nine different measures, including the WHO, Bloomberg does one, um, various other organizations uh, uh, do this uh, because rankings seem to get a lot of eyeballs and in the internet era, eyeballs are what count. Um, and there seems to be no consistency. You know, sometimes a country like Norway will be in the top 10, or you know, France will be in the top ten, or uh, and then they'll be twenty third, um, and so it 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 makes you just scratch your head and say, all right, th this isn't making a lot of sense. And one of the things it did convince me is that simple ranking, just giving numbers, is a very stupid idea. 
because healthcare is so complex and it really depends upon what you focus on. So what these rankings end up with is people focus on one or two items. If they're quantitative, they tend to look at, you know, dollars spent, doctors and per thousand people and things like that. And, you know, that is not really what people want. And I think not that informative about how well a system's performing. As I mentioned, I did read your book, and the, the first country you look at is the United States, and I'll, I'll be honest, I read that and then read the rest of the book and came back and reread the chapter on the United States. Uh-huh. And I'd like you to tell our audience a little bit more about some of the measures that you use, such as, obviously, we'll get more into prescription drugs and, and drugs, but training, hospital care, long-term care, just so our audience has a sense of what you're what you're comparing? Well, we use 22 metrics. And, you know, the main thing is, um, and, and some of them are quantitative, but a lot of them are qualitative, like, uh, you know, ones that are, in, you know, do you have comprehensive benefits? Well, we think this is kind of important. Um, and, you know, one of the things that surprised to me, and I thought I knew a lot and, and surprised to lots of other people is, look, Canada, for example, in their program doesn't cover drugs. Some provinces do, but, you know, it's not part of the mandatory program. That's a historical legacy, but it means it's not comprehensive in the way that we expect and the way the United States, you know, finally solved in terms of uh, uh, Medicare in in the early 2000s. Um, Then you also want, you know, how much am I going to pay when I go see the doctor or the hospital? People want to know, do I have free choice of doctor, free choice of hospital, free choice of insurer? They often put big emphasis on waiting times for various procedures. So we made a list of 22, some of which the average person is concerned about, some of which health policy people and the person people should be concerned about, even if they're not, and then some that are for specific populations or more likely are going to become increasingly important if you uh, look at health systems as they're gonna evolve over the next 25 years. So as you mentioned, both mental health and long-term care are two issues that undeniably are gonna become really important over the next 25 years. Most evaluations don't include them or don't think about them. And we thought that they were important and and needed to be included in uh, this kind of assessment of health systems. And and one of the things that I wasn't aware of until I read your book was just how decentralized healthcare systems are, where in in many cases, we assume that that is not the situation. Everyone talks about the Canadian healthcare or the French healthcare, but in Canada and Switzerland, it it varies greatly between provinces or or cantons. Yeah, uh, that's not just true in those countries, but yes. So in Canada, just to take a concrete example, and then I'll generalize it, you know, there's a general law uh, uh, the Health Act, which sets five principles and, you know, has the federal government paying for a, a lot, almost all of it to the provinces, but then the provinces specify details, which is why some provinces will cover drugs, but it's not true all across provinces. Um, and, you know, for those of who follow Canada closely, you know, the Western provinces have been the ones really driving comprehensive health care in Canada. Uh, mainly because they're rural and um, uh, they don't have the big urban cities of Toronto and, and Montreal, where healthcare has been sort of driven by these hospitals and, and physician systems, and the rural areas need to provide services to very, very disparate people. But that 
issue that it's province by province. As you mentioned, Switzerland, it's canton by canton. Australia, uh, you do have some national government and the national government does pay for things, but then uh, very heavily regional in terms of paying. Uh, Norway also has four regional health authorities that govern and, and oversee the hospitals. Now there's much more coordination over time and consistency. Um, and that single payer notion, you know, we think all these countries are single payer, but that again is not true. It is true that in almost all of them, there's a payment to the government and then the government pays. But in some cases, the government pays directly to doctors and hospitals. Um, but in other cases, like uh, the Netherlands and Germany, the government pays to insurance companies. They call them sickness funds. Um, and then they organize the care and they organize the doctors and they pay the doctors. Um, and so uh, you can have systems that are, are uh, very different uh, in how they organize the care. So at least Switzerland, Germany, and Netherlands have insurance companies as intermediaries. And France is this funny place where there is a statutory system, so a government system, but it's, it's broad. It covers lots of services, but very thin. There's very high copay. So 95% of the population have supplemental insurance. Indeed, the government almost requires supplemental insurance um, uh, to cover the co-pays and to add choice and, and other things uh, for people. Um, so very, very, very different ways of organizing care across these countries. And in so many of the countries, really caring insurance is mandated with very high penalties. And I don't know which country you want to identify, but certainly that is the case in, in, in France. Yeah, uh, Netherlands, Switzerland, you have to have private insurance, right, through a sickness fund or a private insurer in the case of Switzerland. And if you don't, they put you on and they, they penalize, you know, they take the premium out of you and they penalize you. And so, you know, one of the things, though, some of you may recognize the name Uwe Reinhardt. He was a great health policy expert at Princeton. And he said, you know, the problem with the American system is we make this a mandatory, but then the penalty for not doing it is so low that it's not really mandatory. Whereas other countries that take this seriously, you know, they mandate you have health insurance. And then if you don't have it, they basically charge, penalize you the cost of that premium. So everyone gets it. Um, and that, I think, is, is a difference between the United States and other countries. And I think, you know, there's a sort of um, uh, uh, schizophrenia, you might say, among Democrats who passed the Affordable Care Act. We wanted everyone to get insurance, but we wanted not to penalize people who didn't get insurance because, you know, tax or penalizing them with a heavy financial penalty would be too painful for them. Well, if it's too painful for them that then they're not going to buy insurance and you're not going to achieve the universal coverage you want. And so I think, you know, the Netherlands, Switzerland, France, they've decided universal coverage is what we want. And if you're not getting it, we're forcing you to get it. And, uh, um, you know, that's, the, that's one way of getting it. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Which country 
Secretary, um, is most, say, similar to what you were trying to accomplish with the affordable health care, with Obamacare? I think, you know, um, I've written and I about two or three, four weeks ago wrote in, in the Wall Street Journal that, you know, in many ways, the system in Germany and the Netherlands is one that we could really adopt with the fewest changes and would be the most, you might say, uh, compatible with our underlying philosophy. So there we pay, they pay to the government, the government then pays insurers, people have to pay a small premium to insurers for the poor, it's subsidized. And then you've got choice of doctor, um, you've got a sort of uh, more uniform payment system to doctors, um, uh, but there's coordination of care, there's various innovative programs, especially the Dutch, they're a very innovative group and they've done a lot of innovation in payment and delivery. Um, and that is, you know, we already have that in many ways in the federal employee health benefits program, Medicare Advantage, the sort of managed care part of Medicare. And, it, uh, we have it in the exchanges. It wouldn't be a very complex way of moving our system closer to uh, a universal healthcare coverage system. And, and there are a lot of advantages. A lot of the um, administrative complexity we have would go away if we move towards that system. And employers, you know, could easily slot into it. So one of our viewers asked this: In order to improve the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, should Obamacare be scrapped or should it be revised? And what parts, uh, he or she asks, would you keep or modify? Well, you know, part of the problem is what you mean by Obamacare. You know, as I like to remind my students, Obamacare, uh, the, the bill, the Affordable Care Act, is over 906 uh, pages um, and then, you know, had some amendments to it as well. So what do you mean? If you mean the exchanges and the expansion of Medicaid, um, I think, you know, you're in Texas. Texas is not going to expand Medicaid. If we want to get, and therefore, there is no path to universal coverage in the United States. We will never get to 99% coverage uh, if, uh, you know, Texas continues uh, the way it, it is. Uh, so we're going to have to expand Medicaid uh, in a way, and we've proposed nationalizing it. Well, if you nationalize it, you know, we also made the system more complex by having Medicaid and the exchanges. I think one of the things we can do is to bring them back and merge them um, uh, in a very effective uh, system. So I, I think we need to think again, that would still be building on the Affordable Care Act, building on the 10 essential benefits, building on caps on out-of-pocket payments. There are lots of things that we would be uh, still using that came from the Affordable Care Act that have made a big difference in the American healthcare system. So I, th I view it as the next uh, reform built on the Affordable Care Act, um, and I think, uh, but it, it will, it would make some substantial changes in that framework. So Nathan asks, why has the United States been so resistant to the notion of universal health care as an entitlement? Whoa. A big question. The history um, of it. You know, I, I think at this moment uh, with Black Lives Matter, a lot of people will say uh, that race has some element to uh, do with it. You know, when we uh, uh, passed Social Security um, and unemployment insurance, there were groups that were left out um, and not covered a lot based upon race, like um, housekeepers. 
uh, domestic workers, uh, farmers. Um, uh, a large part of the view also of Medicaid was, you know, it's, it's for the other. Um, uh, there's a, often a, a phrase among policy people in Washington that programs for the poor are poor programs because we end up starving them. Um, what is interesting is now that Medicare, Medicaid has been expanded, you have about 75 million people on Medicaid, um, people actually like it. Um, and we will have a huge swath more because of COVID, because people who've lost uh, their jobs are also losing their employer-sponsored insurance, they're going to end up on Medicaid. One of the nice things about Medicaid is those co-pays, deductibles, pretty low. They're not zero. I, I say zero but here, but no, they're not zero, but they are incredibly low. We're talking about single dollars, not hundreds of dollars. And I think people end up liking that. Now, they don't have as much choice of specialists, especially, um, but, you know, that's, there are some trade-offs and people seem willing to take the trade-offs. I but as you think, write yourself, in reality, it's extremely difficult for any country to go from private financing to a single payer. So correct. What gives you hope? And, and, well, and also there was a big philosophy, you know, I mean, I shouldn't underestimate. So race is one element. The Cold War is another element. After the war, when a lot of countries went to universal coverage, Britain in 46 and others, you know, they viewed this as a reward for World War II. We expanded employer-sponsored insurance, and the idea of expanding government insurance, you know, we were in a battle with Russia and with communism and socialism, and that looked socialistic to us. And so it got caught up in that uh, battle. Um, as costs have risen, um, as it's become more uh, viewed as an essential fundamental uh, uh, aspect of, of uh, life, I think you can see, you know, the, if the Affordable Care is Act has done anything. It's like it's converted people to everyone ought to have health care, and there's really no excuse for us to have 10% uninsured um, and going up. Not yeah, going I was going to ask you that. How much do you think it's increased now with uh, you know 40, 45 million Americans now that are unemployed? Well, we've seen a 5 million, you know, from a few months ago, a 5 million number increase. I think Part of that is going to have to salt out because with the $600 a week um, uh, added payment for uninsurance, people can afford the uh, exchanges. Um, but I think you're going to see in January uh, a real reckoning, as it were, with a lot more people, tens of millions of more people uh, losing employer-sponsored insurance and ending up on Medicaid. And then I think the country, you know, people who've had employer-sponsored insurance are going to demand. We need a, a solid safety net. This holy safety net that it's very difficult to navigate um, is something that has to end. And, you know, it, it's really hard to justify the complexity we have. Employer-sponsored insurance, Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, VA, um, you know, TRICARE, and all these other, I mean, that just makes no, no sense. And uh, as I mentioned before, it adds tremendously to our administrative costs literally hundreds of billions of dollars. So when we're talking about employer-provided health care, Don wants to know just how common is it around the world? How common is employer-provided health insurance? Um, as a fundamental way of going, not common. On the other hand, in many countries, employer-sponsored insurance is, as a supplement is common. So I mentioned Canada doesn't require drug coverage. 
so as a consequence, a lot of employers offer it as a fringe benefit insurance for it, or one of the uh, two of the most uh, services least covered, uh, I guess, most countries don't cover it, are dental care and vision care. Um, and they also are frequently provided by uh, employers. Um, so not as a core, but as supplemental is very common. Financing is a different issue. A lot of countries use employers uh, and employer uh, tax to um, uh, finance healthcare. Germany uh, being the leading example, they started it in the 1880s and they've continued it that where uh, payroll tax on employers is used to finance uh, healthcare. So one of our viewers, and it's W.X. Spoon, and uh, I, I'm definitely going to get to the United States. Um, I've been <laughs> purposely not doing that, but he's, why no discussion of outcomes? Where do we stand in the United States? Where would we stand? So this is as good time as any for, for perhaps you to say about our ranking as you see it and, and where we can improve, yeah. need to it, improve. It, it depends what you mean by outcomes. I, I take it you mean outcomes by, in terms of health outcomes. How do we- I think, yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay, because there are other outcomes. There's financial outcomes, um, uh, innovation outcomes. Um, but if you take health outcomes, the first thing to note is we're not so hotsy-totsy when it comes to overall life expectancy. Um, if that's an outcome that you care about. Uh, we're sort of 78, 79 years. The Japanese are the world leader for a big country and they're at 84 overall. Women always tend to, in every country, tend to do better than men. Um, uh, they have more longevity uh, than men do. Um, if you look at particular diseases, and in another research project I've been looking at particular diseases, we are in the top echelon when it comes to cancer um, and cancer's the number two killer, but we're not at the top echelon when it comes to heart attacks. Uh, we're not in the top echelon when it comes to infant mortality, not even close. And even if you're white and you're relatively well off, you're also, uh, you're, not near, you're not number one in the world uh, uh, in that category. Uh, many other countries do much, much better than we do. Um, the Scandinavian countries, uh, Denmark, um, and so it's, it's, uh, it really depends on what you look at. Uh, for all the money we spend on outcomes, uh, we do not actually rank that highly, except in cancer, where we do. And even in cancer, I can tell you that there are, you know, we're number one in breast cancer, no matter who you are. But if you look at childhood leukemia, where we innovate, we develop all the new therapies, you know, Germany actually does a better job uh, for its kids. Um, and uh, so I think there's a lot of room for improvement on those outcomes. So two more questions. Um, first from Abid, what role does malpractice insurance and the cost of litigation play in the, in the costs that we see in the United States? Much less than you think. <laughs> a few percentage points at most, if you include defensive medicine, lots of studies have looked at it. And um, the fact is, it's just not a big part of the system. Doctors always blame, well, it's because of malpractice I got that MRI on the head or the MRI in the back. The fact is there are many things driving doctors to order those tests. If you look at places like Texas that have changed their malpractice laws to, um, to make them more restrictive, to give doctors relief, 
they haven't seen prices come down at all. You have seen, by the way, quality probably come down uh, when the malpractice change. I'm a big so, proponent, a big proponent of malpractice reform, but that's mostly so doctors stop using it as an excuse for not for doing good medicine. We got another 45 seconds and you are advising Vice President um, Biden. So what advice are you giving him now that he should do if he is elected to get a top, get on top of the pandemic? Well, we uh, part of the rationale for that report that I mentioned that we released yesterday at the Center for American Progress was precisely to lay out a roadmap of, okay, let's assume on January 21st, we do have one or two or three vaccine candidates. Here's the roadmap you need to have to make sure people get it expeditiously. So that, that's just one of the products. Well, Dr. Manuel, I want to thank you for spending an hour with us. And I really do want to encourage our, our, our viewers to pick up a copy of which country has the world's best health care. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, it wasn't quite as easy read as Mark Grossman's book, a spy thriller, but I, I, I learned a hell of a lot more from it in some ways uh, about uh, health care and uh, some of the tough issues we're facing in the United States. Uh, wishing everybody a good day, and we'll see you again soon. Again, thanks so much, Zeke. Thank you very much. It's been a great interview, and I hope your uh, audience enjoyed it, too. Bye.